Well, uh, I want to begin uh, today by uh, telling you about and then showing you a, a framed poster that I've had for a long time, like probably 20, 25 years. It is a poster of Albert Einstein. Uh, it's hung in various places throughout my life, uh, in my room, I think, when I was a kid, uh, in different offices. Uh, since I've been married, uh, it's mostly hung in the basement, um, and I think you'll see why. So here's the poster. Um, I know what you're thinking. How could Dawn not want this beautiful poster up uh, in, our, in our living room? Uh, she doesn't actually want Einstein peering down at us. Um, but it's not so much his picture that uh, I've always liked. It's the quote. It's a little hard to, to read because of the handwriting. But basically, it's a quote from Einstein which says, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. I've always loved that. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. Uh, I love it because I think it expresses this sort of sometimes unspoken human desire to know about God. Uh, even if, you know, we aren't a person of faith, there may be some sense in which we have an understanding that there's got to be someone out there, and if there is, I'd kind of like to know what he is like. Um, everyone's been thinking of that since, since the beginning of humanity, uh, today even in our sort of post-religion culture. But the real reason the quote is compelling to me is not just because of what it says, but because of who said it, right? This is Einstein. Einstein, the brilliant physicist Einstein, the one who who contemplated the complexities of the universe in amazing ways, calculated and theorized time and space in ways that no one had before and, and even since, he is the one who's saying, man, I, I want to know the thoughts of God. It seems that even to him, and who better, right, to ponder the complexities of God, even to him, uh, God seemed far away. Uh, God seemed inaccessible to a certain, to certain extent, and I think that too is something that we can identify with. Whether we're in the church or not, uh, there no doubt have been times in our life where we have felt um, that there's been a gap between us and God, that we've wanted to know God more than we do or maybe at all, and yet it's, it's been difficult. We've been hindered. I, I remember when I was, uh, even before I came to faith in my teens, I was really into essays, right? Essays, this intellectual enterprise of writing things down, and so I wanted to write an essay about God, and I labored to try to, try to conceive of, of who he was and kind of wrote things down. It was a daunting task. And that's true even after we come to faith sometimes. There can be times when in our Christian walk, uh, we're, we're gathering with the church, we're reading our Bible, we're, we're praying, and yet, and yet we can't seem to know God in the way that we want. Well, in our text today, uh, we gain some needed insight about this idea of knowing God. Really, two things are communicated to us through this, this brief text. One is what keeps us from knowing God. And the other thing is how we can truly see him and hear him and know him for who he is. So that's, that's what we're going to get this morning. Um, and there's only a few verses to do it. Now, if you've been following along, you're going to notice that we're actually uh, going backwards in Luke chapter 10. Uh, last week, we kind of came to the end of the chapter, but there's a few verses that we skipped uh, because of some scheduling when I was going away on holidays, and I didn't want to leave them. I wanted to hit these verses. So we're going to do Luke 10 verses 21 uh, to 24. And I'm going to begin uh, just by reading the first uh, couple of verses. So here's, here's God's word to us this morning. In that same hour, he, that's Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. 
So those are our uh, beginning part of our verses, beginning part of our text. And uh, the, uh, the first point, there's going to be two points, is this. We can't know God on our own. That's the first point. We can't know God on our own. And if we look back to verse 21, uh, we'll, we'll see basically Jesus uh, saying that. It says there, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven uh, and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So the first question we should be wondering is, what are these things? What is it that Jesus is talking about? Well, uh, if you remember, this is just after Jesus had sent out 72 disciples to go and preach about the kingdom of God. And then they came back. They were rejoicing at all the things that they had done. They had uh, spoken about the Messiah. They had done healing. They had cast out demons. At that moment, the disciples had an immense amount of clarity about who God was and what his kingdom was like. Even the theologians of the day, they would have been astounded. Einstein would have been so jealous at the things that these disciples were able, able to apprehend. But if you notice in the verse, uh, Jesus is thanking God because these things, these spiritual truths, were hidden from some people and revealed to others. Which is interesting. right? Why, why would God leave certain things hidden from some people Reveal them to others. And why would Jesus be so happy about it? He's rejoicing, he says, in the Holy Spirit because of this. Wouldn't Jesus, you'd think, want as many people as possible to know as much about God as possible? Why would he be happy about this? Well, the answer is that Jesus doesn't necessarily want everyone in every situation to know as much spiritual truth as possible. He's not, his goal is not just information for us. His goal is heart transformation. So we're going to see the difference here in terms of these two groups of people uh, when we look at them more closely, right? There's the wise and understanding and the little children. So first, uh, here in the text, right, he says this group he calls the wise and understanding, which sounds like a pretty good thing, right? We tend to want to be wise. We tend to want to understand things. Uh, but here Jesus is speaking about the wise and understanding according to the world's uh, systems and values. So you can imagine here, really, he's speaking about those uh, intellectuals, academics, um, the Einsteins of, of whatever day. Uh, specifically, at this time, he'd be speaking about the religious scholars, so like the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They were the intellectual elite. right? They were the ones that everyone turned to uh, for insights into the things of God. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They were experts in the law. Uh, they were the ones who had the godly wisdom. But they were also the ones who had the hardest time understanding who Jesus really was. So why was that? Why were these, these men, who were the brightest and the best in a sense, why did they have the hardest time understanding who Jesus was? Well, I would suggest to you it's, it was because of their immense intellectual capacities, because they were so smart, because they had come to such a great degree of understanding about the law of God, they then prioritized their own ideas about who God was rather than receiving the different ideas when Jesus came, right? When Jesus came, he challenged everyone's conception about who the Messiah was, what the kingdom of God was like. And so when the Pharisees and Sadducees heard this, they rejected his words and they went with their own wisdom. And, and that reveals to us something about earthly wisdom. Earthly wisdom tends to blind us in some very serious ways. I mean, we know this just in our lives, right? We, we know that when there's someone in our life who really thinks that they got things figured out and they know the way that things are, they're not really receptive, tends to be, to any other input, right? They, they got it. They got it figured out. Well, this is especially true when it comes to spiritual truth. 
And uh, I'm going to tell you a story of a woman that really illustrates this perfectly. Uh, Her name is uh, Etta Linneman. Uh, She lived in kind of the mid-20th century. She was a brilliant, just brilliant uh, New Testament scholar, a very liberal New Testament scholar. Uh, If you know some of the and our different types of biblical criticism. She, was, she studied under the masters of form criticism. So Rudolf Bultmann is, is who she studied under. Uh, in the 1950s, she published her first book, and it was a smash bestseller as far as you know, books about the Bible go. It was, just, it was a very, a lot of people who were interested in that kind of thing, they bought it in the academic world. Man, everyone knew her name. It was, she helped to establish uh, what became known as historical critical methodology, kind of studying the Bible from a scientific kind of textual point of view. Uh, she began, uh, you know, getting invited to all sorts of conferences. When she was done her PhD work, she was immediately invited to be part of uh, something called the New Testament Studies uh, Society. She was definitely wise according to the world, but, but as her career began to really take off, and as her name began to be known, and more and more people wanting to know what she had to say, um, she began to be very troubled. She had this sense that even though she was knowing so many things about the Bible, she wasn't feeling close to God at all. In fact, she was feeling more and more distant from God. She she began to realize that there was no real life in her work and that she herself didn't didn't know God in a really true and intimate way. She became disillusioned, depressed, started drinking heavily, started not leaving her house, just watched TV, whatever 1960s TV would look like back then all the time. And she was really trying to dull her misery, this sense of, of emptiness, even though she should have been so full. Well, this went on for some time until something changed. I want to read to you her words from a written testimony about what happened. She says this, At that point, God led me to vibrant Christians who knew Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. She said, I heard their testimonies as they reported what God had done in their lives. Finally, God himself spoke to me spoke to my heart by means of a Christian's brother's words. By God's grace and love, I entrusted my life to Jesus. He immediately took my life into his saving grasp and began to transform it radically. My destructive addictions were replaced by a hunger and a thirst for his word and for fellowship with Christians. I was able to recognize sin clearly as sin rather than as merely making excuses as has been my previous habit. So you see the difference. The difference in this, in this woman's life Someone who had published books about Jesus, about the Bible, about God, finally met Jesus. And when she met Jesus, that's when her life changed. Peace, joy, a sense of really knowing God entered her life because all of a sudden, the things that she had been blind to, her eyes were open. Right? She'd been blind to her sin. She'd been blind to her need for forgiveness. She knew all about the cross, but she'd been blind to the personal aspect of it that Jesus had died for her because he loved her. She had been blind to who God really was. And this is why we we can't know God on our own. Because in our own wisdom, in our own understanding, as much as that helps us in this life, it tends to blind us from the things that are truly important, who God is, who Jesus is, why we really need him. Uh, Later on, After her conversion, uh, someone asked her, uh, what changed? They said, what changed when you came to faith? And her answer was simply, I became a child of God. That was how she she phrased it, how she put it together. I became a child of God, which, which is helpful for us 
because that's the same language that Jesus uses. It helps us to understand what he's talking about, right? If you look back in our text, it says that he thanked the Father because he had kept certain truths hidden from the wise, but he had revealed spiritual truths to the little children. Little children, such an interesting phrase, but it's one that we see over and over again in the Bible. He's really, he's just speaking about the disciples, the disciples, the ones that are standing there before him and all those who would come to follow him. But look also in Luke 18, verse 17. A little bit later on, he says this. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Which is a pretty absolute statement. And one that should make us want to know, what, like, what does he mean like a little child? What does it mean for us, if we're interested in following Jesus, to become like a little child? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that we uh, turn off our brains. One thing we know about children is that they never stop thinking and talking and asking questions all the time. They're so very inquisitive, right? That's a good thing for disciples and a good thing for for children. It also doesn't mean uh, that we become mindless drones. Children have just exciting individualities. They, They grow and they flourish and they become more and more the person that God meant them to be and they're individuals. To be a Christian doesn't just mean we, we toe the party line, that we just, again, stop thinking and just do whatever the, the church says. It means that we are inquisitive and interested, that we are seeking to know God more. Probably uh, the defining attribute of a little child is that they naturally and gladly depend on their parents. If you think about the difference of what it means to be a child, they, they, they tend to recognize that they need help. Now, I know for some of you who have two and three-year-olds, at that point, they tend not to want any help. Uh, But that's just for the moment, right? Where they say, I do it my way. But then when things, you know, go horribly wrong, they cry and they want help. They they very quickly tend to, to ask for help and are aware of the fact that they cannot get through life on their own, right? Everything that they really need, food, shelter, comfort, security, um, they, they don't really have the illusion they can do it on their own. This is why... Uh, Jesus didn't use the Greek word for teenager, right? He didn't say you should become like teenagers. Sorry, teenagers, but we know as we tend to get older, we tend to get more self-sufficient. We have the idea that we know we got things figured out, right? That's why it's good to have a teenager in the house. You can ask them. They, they know everything. So, um, but little children are dependent, right? And they accept that joyfully. Uh, they, they cling to the one who gives them life and helps them and supports them. We really struggle with that as we get older. Because all of a sudden, we can care for ourselves, And we tend to think that we have everything we need, right? We're making a life for ourselves. We're getting educated, whatever it happens to be. We, we love the idea of being independent and self-sustained. But the problem with that is that if we have that mindset and that disposition of heart, we will never truly know God. Because we will never see ourselves accurately as ones who are dependent upon our creator. As, as ones who are in great peril apart from the gracious work of God. So the, the key, the key difference in terms of being a little child is, is humility. Right? Humility is the key to knowing God. If we are to gain spiritual truth, we need to recognize that in of ourselves, we don't have everything we need. And this is tough. I mean, I've met a number of people uh, over my time as a pastor, some just kind of walking in the church building, wherever it was that I was uh, at the time or in my office, and they seem to have a real sense of wanting to know God, right? Maybe they're reading their Bible, maybe they're coming together to the church, they're asking questions. But there's a difference between 
kind of seeking to know God with our mind and really humbling our heart and recognizing that we need him. And for many of these people, they just never got to that point where they were willing to say, look, Lord, I, I don't have all my questions answered, but what I know is that without you, I'm, I'm lost. That is the key for knowing God. That is what Jesus is talking about. That's why, that's why he, he isn't excited about those who are still full of wisdom and understanding having spiritual truths because he knows if it's revealed to them, they'll just be more puffed up. They won't actually draw near to the Lord. They'll think, well, I figured it out on my own. He wants those spiritual truths to remain hidden to compel them to humble themselves and come to the Lord. We see this in Matthew. This is, I mean, Jesus speaks about this all the time, but here's Matthew 5, uh, 3 to 6. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, we won't be satisfied on our own. We won't be satisfied unless we truly humble ourselves and know the Lord. In fact, anyone, everyone who humbles ourselves, who asks for help, God is, rejoices in answering that prayer. He will reveal himself to us. And we will either come to faith or grow in faith. So that's the first thing. The first thing is that we can't. We are unable to know God on our own. But the second thing we see in this passage is that only Jesus can truly reveal God. Only Jesus can truly reveal God. And we see this in verse 22. Uh, Look, I've highlighted the kind of exclusive, absolute type of language he uses here. All things he says, have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So you see that the language there, very, um, there's really no wiggle room there, right? No one knows God except the, the Son. Now, just as a bit of a, uh, a sidebar here, if you're ever wondering why the, um, we have this idea in the Christian church of God as a trinity, right? three persons in in one, it's because of passages like this. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but you find this, where Jesus is is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, speaking about God the Father, and speaking about himself as God the Son. It's a very clear picture of this unity of of persons and yet distinction. And it's also a very clear picture of of kind of a family. Now, the Trinity is more than a family, uh, and it's not just because of the titles of Father and Son, but but really what is pictured here is the intimacy of a family. I mean, if you think about your family, uh, it, it'd be fair to say that no one really knows the people in your family like the people in the family, right? Uh, if you were a kid at school and maybe a teacher came up to you and talked about your brother or sister and they said, oh, your brother is such a nice boy. Love having him in a class. You're, man, your, your sister is such a sweetheart. What a sweet girl. And you're thinking in your head, you don't know them. They're horrible. <laughs> At home, my brother's horrible to me. He tortures me all the time. My sister, she's so full of herself. She's always doing her hair for hours and hours. We're always late everywhere we go. You don't know my family. I know my family. Why? Because we're, we're in the nitty-gritty. We know each other intimately, more than we'd like probably most of the time, especially during COVID. Um, but what Jesus is saying here really is, look, I know the Father. We have spent eternity, an infinite amount of time in heaven together. Right? We've been in each other's presence. We are united in our very um, understanding of who we are. Our divine nature is united, yet we're different. I know God better than anyone else. If you want to know about him, you should come to me. But in fact, he's saying, he's really saying more than that. He's, he's not just saying, I know God the Father better than anyone else. 
He's saying, I'm the only one who really knows who God is. Now that is a controversial statement. Pretty much in every day, especially today. Back then it would have been controversial because there would have been like Roman pantheon of gods, Greek gods, so many different gods that people would want to add and worship. Today, it's controversial because we value um, inclusivity. Right? To say that there's only one way to God smacks of arrogance. People say, look, you can believe whatever you want, but just don't claim to have the, the market cornered on God. How could you say that with all the different religions that are out there? And yet, yet the Bible is very, very clear. Unless your understanding of God comes from Jesus and through Jesus, it is false. That's what the Bible says. The only one who can truly know God, think about why this would make sense. Because the only one who can truly know God is God himself. If, If there is someone who's claiming to know God, who is a human being, there is a divide there that we should mistrust. And yet Jesus is saying, I am God. I am divine. And I've come so that you might know who God is, which means if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes, he makes this very clear. He says this very thing. Uh, this is in John 14. This is right before the cross. And so the disciples are getting nervous. They don't know what's going to happen, but they figure something, something serious is going to happen. And so they want assurance. And so look at how this interaction goes. John 14, beginning in verse 8. Philip said to him, that's Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. That's what they want. Just show us God. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see, you see the difference he's making here. You see the difference between him as claiming to know God and all of the other people. He's saying, look at the works. Look at the works I have done. Jesus didn't just come talking a lot about God. He did the works of God. His whole ministry was one of miracles. He proclaimed the kingdom saying, look, here's how you, you need to be right with God. But also he healed people, healed the sick, controlled the weather, cast out demons, raised people from the dead, controlled the weather. All of it saying, look, I'm not just another prophet. I'm divine. And the whole time he was saying, I have come so that you would know God. Not just intellectually, not just in terms of some religious rituals, but intimately, that you would be united with him Because your sin would be taken away. There'd be no barrier anymore. This is is the how, by the way. If you're wondering, how how does this work? If, If Jesus is the only one who truly knows God, how is it that we can be in his family? We see it also in verse 22. He says, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Anyone. Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That is what it means to become a Christian. We are chosen by God, his spirit working his good in our lives in spite of our earthly wisdom, not because of it. See the difference, right? We, our eyes are opened by God himself. He, he gives us the ability to see the things that we could not see. So if we are confessing, if we are repenting, it's evidence that God has already been at work in our lives. Let, let me put it to you this way, just to kind of see the emphasis of what's being said here. Anyone who, who claims to know God or claims to be able to lead you to God, but does not do it through the gospel of Jesus, is not only a liar, 
they're the most dangerous person you will ever meet. Because so many people have been told, look, follow this path, listen to this revelation. They think that they are close with God. They think that everything is okay. And yet at the end of their life, they realize they're, they are far from God. Their sin has not been taken care of. They haven't ever confessed the name of Jesus and they're lost. See, earthly wisdom, false spiritual teaching, it, it conspires to destroy us. And this is why Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not arrogance. It's grace and kindness and love that he wants for everyone in the world to know, look, there is one way to be saved. It's, it's me. I'm the only one that can do the work necessary for you to be right with the Lord. See, see God's goal, God's goal was not to remain hidden from humanity. Despite sin, despite all that happened to kind of, in a sense, ruin what God had planned, his goal was not to be hidden. His goal was to enter into our broken and sinful world and reveal himself to us so that he would save us. This is, this is, this is the idea, that the true conception that we should have of God and of Jesus himself. And I think I, I wanted to give you a picture of it. Because it's one thing to, to read it and to know it. Kind of these are the truths of the gospel. This is what you know, the Bible says. It's another thing to really get the feel of it. So I'm going to give you a, a picture. Try to. Um, this picture is going to come from a movie uh, that I rewatched while I was on holidays. This movie is called True Grit. It is a remake of a movie uh, with John Wayne in it called True Grit. Uh, same title. There, you'll see a picture of it. This is the new one. Um, it's a story of Maddie, who's a 14-year-old girl. Obviously, it's a, it's a Western. And uh, she is um, seeking to bring her father's killer to justice. So she hires Jeff Bridges. Uh, Rooster Cockburn is his name. Uh, he's a U.S. Marshal, very grizzled, grumpy old guy, to, uh, to find her father's killer. He gets even grumpier, though, when he realizes that she intends to come along with him on the journey. She's a very headstrong uh, young woman. So I'm not going to tell you the whole movie, but I'm going to tell you this one scene, which I think illustrates uh, what we're talking about very well. And that is when Maddie, out in the middle of nowhere, is bitten by a snake, a poisonous snake, and, uh, and the, the marshal realizes what has happened and realizes what this means, that she, she needs medical attention, but they're not near anyone. So he, he takes his knife and he cuts into the wound and he, and he sucks out as much of the poison as he can and spits it out. But then he, he throws her on the front of his horse and he starts to gallop because he knows without medical attention, she's going to die, but they are very, very far from anywhere. There's this one kind of outpost that he knows about that's miles away, and so there's this scene of him just galloping and galloping for hours and hours on end. It's kind of the late afternoon, into the evening, into the night. The horse starts to falter, the, is going to stumble. He takes his knife and starts to jab the horse, because he knows if they don't keep going, she's going to die, and so they go farther and farther and farther to find that the horse collapses, and then he picks her up, and he's, and he's an old guy. He's wheezing and coughing and muttering, kind of getting over the crest of the hill, and he sees the light of this homestead off in the distance, and he pushes himself as far as he can go until finally he collapses, and just before he does, he takes his pistol out, and he fires it into the air and wakes up the person who lives there, and they come out, and they save her life. It's fantastic. <laughs> you don't need to watch the movie. <laughs> but here's the thing. That, that's the heart of Christ in our salvation. It, it's... It's the truth, that the gospel is the truth that, look, we, we are infected with a deadly poison. It doesn't, the trouble is we can't see it. There's no bite marks. 
We look around and we think that our life is fine, right? We're making our way in the world. Everything seems okay, even in the midst of a, of a pandemic. And yet the Bible tries to wake us up and say, look, no, you, if you don't do anything, you are going to be dead in a wasteland of sin with no one to help you. And in fact, there is only one person who can help you. Only one person who can carry you to safety. His name is Jesus. And he spared nothing to get it done. He gave his own life so that we would come to the point of, of being saved from the infection of sin within us that we are complicit in. It hasn't been done to us. We've done it. He lifts us up and he carries us into the presence of God. But see, here's the thing. Unless we see Jesus that way, as our only hope, as our protector, our, our savior, then we will not truly know him. That really is the burden of this text. Two things. How do we see ourselves? And how do we see Jesus? Do we see ourselves as being wise enough to get through? Strong enough to, to make it through? Needing some help, but, but not desperate? Or do we see ourselves on a road to death? Do we see Jesus as the only one who can help us? See, if we aren't careful, we're going to be blinded by the success, by the, the wisdom that we have in this life, and we're going to miss the essential truth. Jesus, he ends, um, he ends this brief scene uh, by reminding those um, who are there of, of the blessing of really knowing him in this way. Right? He's kind of speaking to a larger crowd, and look what he says. Here's verse 23 and 24. He says, Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's an amazing statement. If you think about it, he's saying there are many prophets and kings. He must be referring to the Old Testament. If you know anything about the Old Testament, just think about the amazing people back then and how God revealed himself to them. Right? The Exodus story, uh, manna from heaven, so many victories in battle, a pillar of fire and cloud, the tabernacle. There's so many ways that God revealed himself. And yet what Jesus is saying is, look, the prophets and kings back then, they longed to see what you see. They longed to know God in the way that you are able to do right now. And the difference, the difference is Jesus. The difference is Jesus, God himself, come down in human flesh. And Jesus is saying, man, if, if you're wondering what the greatest blessing you could receive is, it's that you would be able to see me as I truly am. You'd be able to hear my words. That you would not try to make it through life on your own or even relying on religious principles or practices. None, none of that is what will truly help you in the end. What helps you is knowing who I am as Savior and Lord. And so he says, blessed. Blessed are the eyes who see. <clears throat> and I would say to you who are here this morning, if you know Jesus in this way, praise God. Praise God, and may we lean into that. May we not get distracted by our own strength or success or the things that we know a lot about. May we continually come to the Lord on our knees. And if you're tuning in or you're here this morning and you don't know God in that way, the challenge, the challenge is that we tend to think we need to figure everything out before coming to faith. Because it's natural, right? We, we want to know where this is going, we want to do our research. We want to be diligent before we get into anything. That's always wisdom, and it is to a certain extent. But there comes a point where we have to say, Lord, 
I don't know everything about you. I probably never will. But here's the thing that I've come to see clearly. It's that I, I need you. And you can express that just through that simple prayer. Lord, I need you. Lord Jesus, help me. It's a different posture of the heart. Jesus, tell me who you are is different than Jesus, I need you. And this here is, a, is an affirmation of the importance of coming to Jesus in that way. So I'm gonna end in prayer for us as a people, those at home, and ask God to help us to work in our own hearts so that we might see him clearly. Join with me. Lord Jesus, I want to pray for us as a church and for any guests, anyone tuning in, joining in. I want to pray, Jesus, that you would, you would help us, that you would help us not to be blinded by our own wisdom, by our own understanding, by our own sense of, of what we think to be true about you. I pray, Lord God, that you would, you would humble us, Lord, that we would see our need for you, that like Etta Lineman, we would see our sin and call it sin. That we would, we would turn away from those things which are untrue, those apparent sources of spiritual truth that don't speak about you at all. And Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see, for us to see you clearly, how much you love us, what you've done for us. And I pray, Lord, that through that, we would experience great joy and peace and that we would really know you, Lord. We thank you that it's possible. We thank you that we can actually be welcomed into the family of God. You adopt us, Lord, not just as, as children, but as, as those who have a, a first place in your heart. And so, uh, God, I pray that this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would move. I pray those who feel the prompting would respond in prayer. And Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified and that we would be helped greatly. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.